The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We have talked on numerous occasions about the fascinating world of Mesoamerican and Mayan archaeology, and we've also talked at great length about how contemporary archaeology really is involves the melding of a variety of different types of disciplines, and that the feedback from these various disciplines enriches the science base and the knowledge base, and allows us to expand our interpretive potential in archaeology by really expanding horizons in various disciplines and finding ingenious ways of putting them together. One of the areas in which that type of interdisciplinary work and the expansion of sort of conjunctive archaeology or bringing archaeology together from several several disciplines is in the very uh, sexy, if you will, world of Mayan archaeology. And um, the expansion is in large measure due to sort of an order of magnitude increase in the knowledge that we have about hieroglyphics and writing and uh, the decipherment of that writing and how that opens the door and changes the interpretations that we've had in uh, Mayan archaeology, which, as as most of you know, is really one of the most dramatic uh, aspects of archaeology, certainly in terms of social complexity, understanding how city-states were formed, how they expanded, how societies evolved, and how magnificent architecture and structures uh, gained a foothold in the new world and expanded uh, expanded the the social and economic networks of that world. My very special guest is one of the um, figures that's in the forefront of linking hieroglyphic interpretation and decipherment with expanding the horizons of archaeology. Mark Zender received his Ph.D. in archaeology from the University of Calgary in 2004. He has taught at the University of Calgary and Harvard University, and he's presently a visiting assistant professor 
professor of anthropology at Tulane University in New Orleans, where he has taught archaeology, epigraphy, which is the study of ancient inscriptions, and linguistics since September 2011. Uh, Mark's research interests include anthropological and historical linguistics, comparative writing systems, and archaeological decipherment with a regional focus on Mesoamerica and specifically in Mayan and Nahuatl and Aztec uh, culture areas and languages. He's the author of numerous books and articles touching on these themes and has collaborated as a specialist with numerous archaeological projects in Belize, Guatemala, Honduras, and, and Mexico. It is really my pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Mark Zender. Mark, welcome to the program. Thank you for that wonderful introduction, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Mark, as, as basically, and I'm, I'm, I'm dating myself on this, you're a younger scholar, and you grew up in a world in which a lot of interpretations of Mayan archaeology had already been formed. Um, there were certainly a lot of questions, but with this advancement in, in, in decipherment of hieroglyphics, which you've played a big part in, the, the interpretive frameworks has changed. Why don't you give our audience a little bit of a background on where Mayan archaeology was in sort of the infancy of hieroglyphic interpretations? Certainly. Um, well, I mean, the study of, of Maya civilization um, and Maya hieroglyphic writing has a long and distinguished history. It goes back to the late 19th century when things like the calendar and the mathematics of the Maya codices began to be worked out. And, of course, at that time, the Maya ruins and Maya civilization was really just being discovered by explorers and sort of the first scientific archaeologists. But it sort of froze there for a little while, at least in terms of interpreting the inscriptions. And so we have 50 years or more into the middle of the 20th century um, when the ruins began to be excavated, more began to be understood about the material culture of the Maya, but very, very little input from their own writing since the decipherment had effectively halted at understanding how the calendrics worked. And so many kind of interesting and you know, now certainly in retrospect, um, incorrect views about the Maya uh, began to be formed. The idea that we were looking at a kind of an imperial organization that spread across um, the entirety of the lowlands, encompassing modern-day Guatemala and Belize and southeastern Mexico. Um, the idea that maybe we were looking at a priestly and even sort of pacifist um, civilization uh, was another thing that came out of looking at the similarity of styles in architecture and ceramics across a vast space of, of the Maya region. And really, so we're only in the middle of the 20th century. Oh, I'm sorry. No, 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 this is wonderful, but, uh, you know, I mean, how, where were we in terms of hieroglyphics, say, prior to 1950, and was it really interpretations developed on the strength of architecture and, and for lack of a better word, standard archaeology? Yeah, there wasn't very, very much um, of contribution in terms of the inscriptions because they really had halted at just being able to figure out sort of the bedrock chronology to a certain extent of Maya civilization. And so many ideas came out of the similarity of the hieroglyphs themselves across a large space and time, but also architecture and other aspects of material culture. The idea that we're looking at a single unified culture, which has changed dramatically since the decipherment. So when did the decipherment start? And you said it was halted. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a theme that I'm picking up on. Why did it halt? Did it reach a dead end? Were there codices that, that really just were able to give us a certain amount of information, no more? And was there a series of discoveries or major linguistic discoveries that allowed us to go into the next level? 
Great questions. Um, basically, the halting was because of the, the basically the limit of being able to um, to extract information from the hieroglyphs, which had been focused on things like the calendrics and the mathematics. So it was an incredible school, many important scholars in the late 19th century, starting in Germany and then other parts of Europe, and then and then finally in the U.S. Um, that had been able to pull out all of the chronological material, but really weren't entertaining the idea that they were looking at phoneticism, or that is to say, Mayan languages represented with signs recording sound in, this, in these inscriptions. The idea grew up to the middle of the 1950s that my writing just didn't work that way, that it was maybe a script that was pictographic, largely pictorial, or largely ideographic, maybe speaking to the mind without taking a detour through language. That all changed in the 1950s with the work of a Russian scholar, Yuri Knorosov, who recognized that all ancient writing systems, Egyptian, the cuneiform scripts of Mesopotamia, even Chinese, use signs for sound and map spoken language. And when he applied some of those techniques to what he was looking at in Mayan inscriptions, the entire story changed. Suddenly language became important to understand as being present in the inscriptions. So this is fantastic stuff. I mean, this is a quantum leap in, 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 in the interpretive potential. How did he get there? How did he, how did he make that connection? Yeah, absolutely. It was a sea change in what they understood from this ancient writing system. And it, it really rested on the shoulders of a very important manuscript um, that had languished unpublished for centuries. Um, Diego de Landa, a Franciscan friar, had compiled a, a sort of an account of all of the historical, um, calendrical, and glyphic details of the northern Yucatan in the mid-1560s. Like I said, this sort of languished in archives and, and wasn't published until the late 19th century. Um, in it, there was a biscript, a kind of a Rosetta Stone to follow the model of the Egyptian decipherment that related right. 27 Maya signs to the alphabetic characters of the Spanish alphabet. Now, people had tried, beginning with the publication of this manuscript, finally in the late 19th century, to use this as a key to read Mayan glyphs, but there was an assumption that it really was alphabetic, and that, that stymied any kind of investigation. Knorosov supposed that really what these signs were giving was the pronunciation of the names of the Spanish letters involved. So instead of, you know, B for the sound B, it was giving us B, which is how the, the Spaniards pronounced, of course, the name of their letter, C for the letter C and so forth. Sure. When he applied those against some of the codices that we had, that were fairly close in time, a few hundred years before the arrival of the Spanish, to Diego de Landa's biscript, and so a lot of the signs looked very similar to one another, he was able to yield sense. Suddenly whole passages um, made some sense, and what he published in 1952 was the bedrock, you know, sort of foundational mythology of our field, um, where you know, basically that 1952 publication, 95% of it is still correct. We still read the signs very, very much in that way. So he basically uh, established a baseline. So let's just go back to the uh, mid-20th century. Where were we in terms of putting together the glyphics, the calendrics, and the architecture uh, as, in terms of understanding my, my, my in archaeology, it was it was 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 this basically coming to uh, sort of a confirming series of interpretations? If you looked at the archaeology, would get some positive affirmation of what the glyphs were saying. I mean, was that feedback loop working well? Not very early on, unfortunately. It was kind of a slow process. Um, this initial decipherment, of course, was of several signs for sound, some 20 in number in his first publications, a slightly larger uh -huh. number into the late 1950s. Um, and then it took some time until 
there was really enough known and legible in Mayan inscriptions to really begin to impact some of the large stories that have been told about Maya civilization. And other things came to the fore at the same time. Um, the, the phonetic decipherment was critical, and now it's something that we can really come to grips with in terms of the history of Mayan languages. But at around the same time, other scholars were looking at other kinds of patterns. So monuments at sites like Piedras Negras um, in, in um, Guatemala for instance, revealed a, a structure that just by reading the, the, the chronological information on the monuments and their placement of the site, the scholar Tatiana Proskuryakov was able to show that they must be talking about the lifespans of human kings. Um, and so we weren't thinking about priestly civilizations or gods on monuments anymore, but we were probably looking at dynasties. And around the same time, people became interested in isolating what had to be names of individuals and kings and even their um, exalted titles. So Heinrich Berlin was a scholar who was involved in that work. All of these things were coming to a head in the late 1950s. Knorosov's decipherment of the phonetic dimension, Proskuryakov's revelation that they had to be recording history, and even these personal names and sort of dynastic concerns that were coming out of Heinrich Berlin's work. So there was sort of a convergence, and I'm guessing that um, increased technologies, which you know were starting to, to manifest themselves in the 1950s, uh, discovered additional sites. Additional sites give you more glyphs, and it sort of became a greater feedback loop, and you got increasingly more insights into what the glyphs were saying, and the interpretive potentials expanded, right? Absolutely. And large-scale archaeological projects, in fact, of a scale that we really haven't seen since the 1920s and 1930s, just given the, the fiscal realities of working in the jungle and the very different sort of funding practices in the 20s and the 30s, there were massive projects. And the rewards from those projects, their publications of photographs, drawings of inscriptions, really began, began to become available to scholars in the 1950s and 1960s. So that certainly sped up the progress at that time as well. And so what were the major sites um, that were providing the key information, say, through the 1950s? Some of the most important sites in terms of, of the decipherment specifically and relating it to the archaeological um, data were in the, the central Paten, sites like Tikal and Huachatun in, in um, mm -hmm. the Paten region of Guatemala, Palenque in Chiapas. Um, Copan, a site in Honduras, and there's been a huge project in northern Yucatan at the well-known site of Chichen Itza, which, which mm -hmm. I think probably if the listeners have visited a Maya site, that's likely to be one that they may well have visited at some point. Um, that one in particular wasn't as critical in this early phase, but it became very important later on as we began become interested in regional Maya writing and slightly different dialects and languages appearing in the writing system. And so, uh, basically, it all started to take off at that particular point. That was very, very much the time. And it took some time, again, until um, we moved beyond just the recognition that we were looking at Mayan languages written in the system to really um, uh, deciphering a larger number of signs than Yuri Knorosov had tackled. If he gave explanations for something between 40 and 50 signs towards the end of this, this key period of his work in the late 1950s, we now know that about 500 signs are in use at any given time. And of course, the system developed a lot over about 2,000 years of use. So we right. have many more signs that we know about, but some died out early, others weren't invented till quite late. But that's a pretty complex system. It probably took until the late 1980s, early 1990s, until a large enough percentage of those signs were figured out in terms of these word-based signs, sometimes just their meaning and not 
perfectly their, their phonetic uh, realization um, to really begin to shed light on Maya civilization and change the idea of an imperial structure of priestly politics and other things of that nature. And we'll get back uh, with Dr. Mark Zender on this phenomenal uh, series of discoveries in glyphic interpretation, calendrics, and archaeology after these words. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Want to help make our world a better place, but not sure where to start? Tune into Better Worldians Radio with the creators of the social game on Facebook called A Better World. Join hosts Ray, Mary Sue, and Gregory Hansel, who will inspire you to make a big difference in small ways. They'll speak to experts, authors, volunteers, and everyday people who are changing the world daily. Better Worldians Radio is heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We're back. This is Joe Schildenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. My very special guest today is Dr. Mark Zender, who is at the forefront of research uh, into looking at the almost quantum explosion in interpretation and expansion of uh, Mayan hieroglyphs and um, the the growth in um, interpretive capacities because of that and and the expansion of uh, archaeological discovery in, in the Mayan area and its satellite regions. Um, we had talked about, and Mark, you had enlightened me certainly uh, tremendously about the 1950s being sort of a watershed moment in uh, our understanding of the glyphs and the calendrics and, and being able to uh, systematize that and to start to look at the Mayan archaeological record, the architecture, and a variety of other archaeological phenomena in terms of an expanding knowledge of the glyphs. Now, in the 1960s, there was a book 
boom in archaeological exploration in much of Mesoamerica, as it was in much of the world when, when actually money freed up. Why don't you t- take us through your narrative, let's go beyond that watershed moment, and talk a little bit about how uh, the discovery of additional sites, more excavation, more focused, as, as you and I both know, on what we call problem-oriented archaeology. How did that begin to figure into the expanding uh, database on the glyphs and the calendrics? Well, I mean, the problem-oriented archaeology solved many things that had been previously assumed about the nature of Maya civilization. I mean, one of the ones that's probably most well-known and famous is the idea that Maya civilization had subsisted on the basis of what's called slash-and-burn agriculture, basically burning down forests. And, of course, archaeologists were able to document from the 60s and the 1970s particularly um, that this wasn't the, the only basis, although it remained an important basis of Maya civilization. There were raised fields um, basically reclaimed from swamp. There were terraces on hillsides. There were many kinds of agricultural features that relied on basically using uh, rivers, damming them in order to slow the stream or to create effectively pond-like environments. So there was a lot of that that really just changed our view of how populous uh, Maya city-states might be, for instance. And around the same time, as a really nice byproduct of, of advanced work and increasing work at many different sites across the Maya region, there were, of course, the discovery of many new monuments and many new inscriptions, not just those saying on the surface, very badly eroded and having to be reclaimed from creepers and vines in the jungle, but also those that had been interred by the Maya themselves in antiquity in older constructions and in architecture, some of them beautifully preserved. And any decipherment in any part of the world relies upon having a large corpus or a large body of inscriptions. So alongside all of the problem-oriented archaeology, there was also a, a growing body of material that epigraphers could study in order to tease out yet more um, secrets, basically, from the hieroglyphic writing system. And that literally exploded into the 1970s and 1980s. And uh, it's basically upon that, this amassing of a large amount of data, that our present very, very nuanced analysis of Maya hieroglyphs and the languages that it record really depend. And I would like to remind or, or, or certainly make the audience aware of some of our other programs in which we had talked a little bit about writing systems and archaeological discovery. One of the unique elements of the area of the world in which Mark works is that this is not the desert. This is the rainforest. And these are places where sites get discovered because we have high technology and because um, all of a sudden uh, our understanding of, of what the relationship is between vegetation and buried archaeology just creates a whole new world and uh, correct me if I'm wrong but once you're starting to get into the 70s you're starting to find just a huge amount of preserved well well preserved architecture and related information that's that's opening up a whole new world just in terms of exposing it correct absolutely um, the jungle is replete um, with with ruins previous archaeological sites and settlements also we learn something about really just the chronological depth of any given site. So it's not just that there were so many out there, and still some that are being discovered even today, um, by advanced technology, for instance, such as satellite mapping. Um, But also, archaeologists began to look from the 50s, 60s, and 70s onwards into large structures at different sites and recognize that there are thousands of years of history in any one location in the Maya area as well. So the time depth just vastly augmented. 
Right. And so what I'd like to ask you, Mark, is so here is, you know, just on a very simplistic basis, we're looking at more sites, more architecture, more glyphs, more sites, and, and it's like a feedback loop. And, and how are, how is our expanded knowledge of the glyphs and our expanded interpretations of the glyphs and take us into sort of, uh, sort of the edges of the 21st century? How is that expanding what we understand about things like social organization, uh, commerce? the sort of evolution of the city-state, and how is that working in conjunction with uh, what scholars like yourself are, are finding out about the glyphs and the calendrics? Yeah, I think there's, it's no exaggeration to say that much of what we think we would know today about the sociopolitical organization of the ancient Maya comes to us from this expanded decipherment. Um, we know about the specific social ranking at individual Maya sites, um, from the king and the royal family, which we which we recognize was actually a, a separate sort of lineage-based system within different Maya city-states, down through various um, individuals who are slightly lower ranked than the king and not part of that immediate family, but certainly elite lineages ruling certain subsidiary sites, but that basically um, you know existed under the suffrage of the local king who would put them in office, even though some of them would be part of long lines of individual governors. I suppose you could say at these, these junior centers. And then we have the kings themselves from these centers referring to the kings of distant sites. And this was um, a, a series of incredible discoveries beginning in the, the early 1990s that greatly changed how we viewed the internal ranking and, in fact, the site-to-site -site rankings of different sites. Although many of these kings had carried very similar titles, we now recognize that there was something like high kings or over kings that would actually place different rulers on the throne. So although they would be locally autonomous, they would nonetheless be beholden to these greater kings at distant centers. And that greatly changed our views um, from a kind of um, a monolithic entity of Maya civilization to a much more fragmented, um, some would say balkanized landscape, where nonetheless there were the, these glimmerings of, of client-patron relationships at different sectors. This is work that came to a head in the mid-1990s, um, work that was done by Simon Martin and Nicola uh -huh. Gruba, and has since been added to by many other scholars at different sites. So when you're talking about balkanization, are we talking about something that's hierarchic, or are we talking about something, for example, that's a series of independent entities that are regionally bounded, and then there's sort of an interface between them, and they're engaged in commerce, or there is, a, is there a real hierarchy within the Mayan heartland that varied from region to region and, and, and involved that kind of, of uh, essentially top-down ordering, even within the kingship? It's a little bit of all three, which is what renders it confusing. There's some um, glimmerings of an order that go back a little ways um, so that we can actually see during what we call the early classic period between about uh, 250 and, and 600 AD that the site of Tikal in central Guatemala was really quite important, quite significant, um, and had placed several different kings on the throne, nearby Naranjo, a city called Caracol in Belize, um, but then slowly became usurped as the 6th century wore on um, by another lineage coming down from the north, um, eventually settling this particular dynasty at a site called Calakmul um, mm -hmm. in southern Campeche. Um, and effectively usurped this original position, and then they became um, one of these very, very important um, patrons um, to a number of different cities across the lowlands. And in fact, the, to a large extent, the kinds of history that we read about in the inscriptions of Tikal and in Kalakmul and their allies 
um, lets us realize that at any time, if we recognize where a site stood in relation to either T-Call or Colic Mool, we could predict much of its foreign policy. In other words, there, there seemed to be a, a clear sort of separation between the allies of one group and another group. So as far as the glyphs are concerned, are they informing us about that? Because what you had said earlier is that the, inter the initial interpretive perspectives on the glyphs and, 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 and the ability that we had, or you had certainly, uh, people like yourself, your predecessors, if you will, were essentially recounting dynastic chronologies mm -hmm. and then the, the sort of the fabric and the framework of the interpretations expanded. And how did that expansion move? What kind of information were we able to go into beyond the accounting of, of kingships and lineages and chronologies? Where did we go with that? Just in terms of the glyphs. Yeah, I mean, in terms of a, a bedrock analysis, it's, it's very analogous to, to studying, for instance, ceramics at, a, at, a, at an archaeological site. Of course, initially, they have to be gathered and collected. Uh, one has to work out what the different types are and what their varieties are. Um, and there's a lot of basic work that goes into simply um, grouping together, cataloging, if you will, all that material. But the question the archaeologist is fascinated by, interested in, is really what this can tell us about the people who made the pottery, interactions between different groups, how did right. various stylistic things happen. And the same is very, very much true of Maya hieroglyphs. There's a lot of work of basically in just grouping together all of the different inscriptions from a particular site, working out king lists for site to site. But that was basically the means to an end, um, which is something that we're really reaping now, which is the basically inscriptions that talk about interactions with other sites. And one can infer a lot when the only uh, interactions between city-states like Tikal and Kalakmul was warfare over a period of about 500 years, right? Um, and we can actually see other sites shift um, their allegiances over time. So that they begin, for instance, with some of their early kings placed on the throne by Tikal, but all of that shifts. They go to war with Tikal and its allies, and they begin to visit, for instance, the distant city of Kalakmul for the inaugurations of new kings at that center. So what we get to see is that many different sites were playing power politics during what we would call the middle and the late classic periods, um, working a series of negotiations and alliances with many different sites across the landscape. So these are all things that have, that have come out of this more recent approach um, to all of the hieroglyphs, effectively sitting you know, on the shoulders of a lot of the very, very you know, bedrock work that had been done gathering together all of these king lists, all these local site histories. And we will be back uh, with Dr. Mark Stender and our discussion of Mayan hieroglyphics and the expansion of archaeological understanding in the Mayan region after these words. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris, real talk on business and parenthood, Hosted by Chris FSCU, Chris is the portrait of the success story. Coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. 
Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. When you think of museums, what comes to mind? Is it ancient history? Rotating displays of collections? Are they nice places to visit? Or are they essential to our cities and society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert. We'll discuss what the attraction is and historical importance of museums and what they contribute to the economic makeup of our cities and country. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We're discussing uh, the deciphering of archaeology in the in the Mayan area, and um, as we discussed, sort of in the introductory section of our program, um, there has been a boom in the interpretation of Mayan hieroglyphs over the past 15, 20 years. And, and Mark Zander is sort of one of the uh, specialists who has contributed significantly in that decipherment. And one of the questions that, that uh, I had posed to him during the break was, what kind of parallels do we have in the Mayan region uh, as opposed to, say, the Near East, where, again, expanding uh, interpretations and expanding uh, under, expanded understanding of what the ancient languages are all about often reveals regional events that are interpreted differently by different empires. So that, for example, if there's a cataclysmic event or a major war somewhere in Egypt which brought it together with the, the Palestinians and, and, and the Hebrews, then that account would differ significantly from, from the Egyptian uh, variant uh, to, to the, uh, the ancient Hebrew or, or the Palestinian variant. So are we seeing any of this in, in the uh, Mayan area, uh, Mark? It, it's a fascinating question because you would think on the face of it that having um, a, a series of very, very different city-states rather than a single empire, because, of course, the, the, edu- the, the, the political organization of Egypt through much of its history was very imperial, very central sure. um, down to the different areas, is that you might expect to find many, many different accounts of different city-states all basically referring to the same things. But here, I think, unfortunately, the, the density of inscriptions we have works a little bit against us, so that we very, very rarely find different city-states talking about exactly the same event happening on exactly the same day. On those few occasions where we can check them, we also don't really have what you'd call kiss-and-tell accounts with a lot of discussions of meta-history or reflection on the event. They tend to actually be fairly terse, um, giving us the, you know, sort of the verb individuals responsible. And in those few cases where we can check, they don't tend to disagree, even if they were at war with one another. So sites seem to fairly faithfully record that they were defeated in warfare. 
Of course, uh-huh. when they do that, they do it at the beginning of a lengthy inscription where they've now had time to come back or get their own back in some way. So they close off the inscription indicating, yeah, you know, that was then, but this is now. So what we don't know is whether they would be moved to record their defeat in warfare if they didn't have some such follow-up, right? And we're missing those kinds of accounts. Right. Mark, you know what's really intriguing to me, and and I think most people who follow archaeology, even in a very general sense, I mean, one of really the major advances that has occurred in the past 10, 15 years is, as we talked about, is the boom in in, in hieroglyph and, and calendric interpretation. Let me just put it to you really bluntly. What has this expansion overhauled in terms of traditional models of understanding uh, Mayan culture? Are, are, have these glyphs, glyphs, glyphs exposed us to uh, changes, monumental changes in what we understand and how we interpret the structure of the societies and the system? And, and what might those be? Absolutely. I mean, a sea change would be a good way to describe it. Um, it's difficult for any archaeologist anywhere to really people the past. I mean, even finding the remains of a monumental civilization with um, palaces, structures, temples, etc., really figuring out who lived, moved, and worked in these spaces is a huge interpretive challenge. Um, And there are many, many different theoretical and methodological models to try to get at some of this material. But without some kind of deep ethno-historical accounts or records or the use of ethnographic analogies, sort of projecting local peoples from the same region back into um, these spaces, it's very, very difficult for an archaeologist just on the basis of material remains to people the past in that way. The hieroglyphs actually written by the individuals who moved through and worked in those different spaces, however, um, are, are very specific sometimes, even with you know, great court scenes showing us the, the king seated on his throne, individual courtiers, right. the role and, and of, of royal women and women of other lineages at these different sites, and even sometimes slightly different sectors, um, never really commoners appearing um, in scenes. So the vast majority, of course, of the Maya population is not represented in really the right or the depictions of the elites. But we have like more than the royal family. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And we yeah, have more sure. than the royal family, and we sometimes even have um, elites, priests, and other individuals or functionaries in the court recording slightly their, their own accounts. So we can, we can add a little bit of complexity to this written picture. Um, so great work by Stephen Houston and other scholars, including David Stewart, and basically piecing together all of the ancient titles that we have from the classic period and recognizing just how complex these court environments were and how they even moved across the landscape from site to site. Sometimes kings could move along with their entire retinue to other places, and we have a little bit of that information as well. So it's greatly complicated our view of who was living in these centers and how, how they pursued politics and interactions with other centers. Mark, was there a class of individuals known as scribes that whose, whose primary, primary purview was to actually do this, to do the glyphs? Do we know anything about them and, and how they were integrated into the society? Were they basically just sort of uh, essentially part of the uh, royal retinue? We're very fortunate in knowing something about these individuals. We have their signatures, both on sculpture and on painted works, not from the entire Maya area, and actually kind of concentrated in time and in space in certain regions. But we've been able to extrapolate from those few indications into an idea of who these people were. 
it seems pretty clear that they were they were thoroughly involved with what you would consider um, a, a religious group, right? Um, we might say sure. priests, um, but a very very complex role. The individuals who were responsible for keeping the calendar. Um, for keeping feast days and associations with the complex um, pantheon of Maya religion were the individuals who did this writing and did this sculpture. So it's not really a scribal role or a priestly role, but rather a combination. These are individuals you know, pursuing a liturgical religion, a book-based religion um, in the past. Um, and we know a fair bit about them over a fairly long period of time from sort of the first indications of these individuals appearing in inscriptions in the um, early 6th century up through to the to the close of the classic period in the ninth century, were they highly revered in society, or were it they, seems so by being able to you know sign some important works, um, and some of them are depicted in in scenes of Maya courtly life. So we have to imagine that they were there. They were in some respects the voices of the king, of course, in monuments, and we presume a spate of, of, of literature and unperishable material that we don't have anymore. Um, but we don't know as much about them as we would like. Um, for instance, it, it's not clear whether or not they were members of the royal family or whether they were simply members of other sort of elite lineages. We at the moment don't have parentage statements or references to, of these individuals and their families so that we don't know whether that it continues down generations or individuals are nominated um, on, a, on, a, on a regular basis. Uh, one of the interesting things, of course, and I'm sure you were contacted by a number of people on this issue, was uh, at the end of the year last year, uh-huh. the end of the world, the cataclysm, the cycles, um, doomsday scenarios. Um, I, I think that those of us who who sort of are involved in archaeology and, and sort of step away from, from these kind of spectacular sort of uh, whatever you want to call it, popularizing mythologies, um, I, I think we try to uh, sort of go out and talk to our friends who are not involved in, in, in this type of work and say, well, you know, cycles are a very familiar element of archaeological interpretation in complex societies because the cyclicity of events is, 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 is very, very important because it's related to the land, it's re- related to reproduction, it's related to a variety of different aspects. What has the expansion of the knowledge of the glyph base done in terms of um, a sort of understanding the real dynamics of what these cycles were like and uh, basically talking about this whole doomsday scenario that that a lot of the the, the people who are let's let's just let's say are on the fringe of what's going on uh, try to try to develop well, it's interesting that, of course, the Maya did talk about about 2012, but it was but it was such a, an uninteresting topic overall that they never said much about it on ancient yeah. monuments or gave any predictions for it. And that's really really typical. The Maya were engaged um, in in a kind of a prophecy that we don't tend to think about when we think about prophecy. They weren't really interested in predicting what would happen on a future date. On those very very few occasions when they do project things into the future, they say very very simple and actually non-controversial things about those dates. The kind of thing we might say if we were looking in 1996 ahead at the year 2000, and we would say, you know, in four years, it will be the end of the second millennium. 
That's really almost a direct um, translation of the kinds of things that the Maya said. You know, there's no right. game saying that. They, they never claimed it would be a good year or a bad year or anything like that. They were very fascinated um, by what's called chronomancy. Uh, one of my one of my colleagues and, and good friends, Stanley Ginter, has used that term. Less concerned about what you might consider to be um, astrology, and more concerned about how the numerical system itself could lead to all kinds of important and interesting cycles. Um, and they would project things things from those. So we've learned a fair bit about the kinds of things that they talked about, kind of in light of, of all of the, the mania that was surrounding, uh, of course, the year's end last year, um, right. in looking back at the inscriptions and thinking, well, really, what did they think about these things? And there's been some excellent work, including a, a, a great book by my colleague David Stewart called The Order of Days, which I highly recommend if anybody's interested in knowing what the Maya really thought about their calendar and how they really use their number system. Mm-hmm. And what did it basically say? Uh, very, very similar things to what I've just mentioned, which is that there was they were very, very interested in their calendar in it for its own sake, um, in the patterns that were inherent in it, and less about using it to project other things into the social sphere, for instance. And we know across Mesoamerica that there's a, a profound relationship between the calendar and individual identities. Many people sure. are named after their day of birth in the calendar. And this is about as close as that system comes to, to being kind of like a, a sort of an astrological system, right? What's of your course. sign? What's your birth date? That kind right. of thing. Right, and and so it just sort of worked its way into the ethos there, and 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 just sort of gets circulated uh, extensively, if you will. And I think that's that's obviously a very pervasive theme all over, wherever we have glyphs and wherever we have sort of advanced societies. And and I think the real issue is really cycles and yeah. how they're tied into. Uh, systems and systems are associated with various organic elements of that cycle and 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 where uh, where rounds if you will uh, get developed and and how they come to an end and that there is a convergence in some cases and uh, to project that into these spectacular doomsday scenarios obviously is something that uh, people like to sort of fantasize a little, about a little bit and uh, project to their to their uh, the delight of their own imagination. I, <laughs> I mean, it's also just very fascinating to see how diverse not just the media on which Maya writing appears is, but also its subject matter. You know, we've talked a lot about politics and history, and of right. course the, the calendar and the arithmetic is inescapable just given how common it is on Maya monuments. But as fascinating as all of those are, there's also glimpses at Maya folklore, ethnomedical beliefs, their mythology, their religion, um, that we just couldn't know. You know, these glimpses into what the Maya mindset was during the classic period that you'd right. be hard-pressed to find from any other source. Right. And we'll be back with our final section and segment with our very fascinating guest, uh, Dr. Mark Zender, right after these words. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. 
However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Adoption changes a family forever. For the adopters as well as the adoptees, there are many adjustments that need to be made from lifestyle to financial, and the personal rewards are unlimited. Listen every week for Your Adoption Coach with Kelly Ellison. We will examine in detail such topics as international and domestic adoption. We will talk with adoption professionals and hear stories about real families adopting. If you've been thinking about adoption or recently began the process, you'll want to tune in to be inspired every Saturday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We're back. This is Joe Schuldenrein with uh, Indiana Jones Myth Reality and 21st Century Archaeology. And we're having a really fascinating discussion on uh, hieroglyphs, the advances in uh, the area and the subdiscipline of Mayan hieroglyphic interpretation and calendrics. And we've talked about a number of themes. And, and one of the the more provocative and very relevant issues that I think a lot of scholars are, are trying to move into is to understand the connection between the living descendants of the Mayan as in, the, in this particular part of the world and um, their connection to the archaeological record. And um, Mark, why don't you tell us a little bit about what the domain of of uh, the spoken Mayan language is right now, how it's evolved over the course of time, and um, how, if any way, are we able to connect that with the, the ancient Mayan language? No, a fascinating question, and something that I'm that I'm closely concerned with in in my teaching and in my research. Um, most people don't know that there are 37 distinct Mayan languages that were once wow. spoken in this region. Um, mutually unintelligible, but a half a dozen of those have become extinct since they were first documented in, in the 16th and 17th centuries. But we have about 30 Mayan languages still being spoken today by millions mm-hmm. of modern people, many of whom, but not all of whom, also speak Spanish, of course, and some of whom are bilingual or trilingual in different Mayan languages. Um, this actually presents an amazing opportunity that that puts Maya studies, Maya hieroglyphic studies, in a completely different place than the studies right. of most ancient inscriptions around the world. I mean, if you think about 30-some languages, 37, if we, if we increase it to the ones that were written in dictionaries and grammars in the colonial period, um, our earliest Mayan inscriptions date back to about 400 BC, and we have 30-some languages to try and study them with. By comparison, wow. if you think of ancient Egypt, that was first written down more than 5,000 years ago. 
And there's only one descendant language, Coptic, right? right? Mm-hmm. So if the word is lost in Coptic or if it's just changed and transformed over 5,000 years, there's just no hope of really figuring out what it means. Figure it out, yeah. But we have so many different modern languages to triangulate back towards Mayan inscriptions with that even if one can't find a word or a phrase or a syntactic construction in the modern Mayan languages that are closest to the inscriptions, the Cholan languages spoken today in, in Mexico and in Guatemala, one can nevertheless look at some of these cousin languages or even these distant relatives. And we know enough about their relationships that we can often reconstruct what it is that we can find. That's one of the reasons that I work really, really closely with modern Maya language speakers. I teach a course here at Tulane um, with uh, speakers of Yucatec Maya languages. One of my colleagues here, Judy Maxwell, teaches Kakchikel, which is a Maya language from the Eastern Mayan branch. But every Maya language emerges as important for these reasons, and safeguards these important details that are recorded in ancient inscriptions. Will Mayan uh, populations from one particular region, well, this this is actually something that is analogous to many other parts of the world. Um, for example, in India, uh, where there are still very, very many native languages uh, that are not mm-hmm. Hindi, uh, so uh, connected, it's very funny, if you do a north-south trajectory, you will find that the languages will represent uh, sort of an interface between people of adjacent provinces, so that uh, a speaker in one province will understand the native language of the next province over, but not two provinces over. So there's, there's uh, the, with increasing distance from the particular heartland, the ability to understand and communicate goes away. Is that true in the Mayan world? Or, or yeah, or absolutely. I mean, this is a truism of, of thinking about how languages are disposed naturally on the landscape. It's what linguists right. call uh, dialect continua, right? The idea mm-hmm. that you could just walk village to village and understand everyone, but pretty soon you've walked far enough that it starts to seem really different and suddenly it's a different language and in many respects you know the languages that came out of these divisions of earlier dialect continua you know for instance the romance languages that came out of all the different varieties of roman or latin that were spoken across the landscape post collapse of the roman empire um you know suddenly the sort of digitization of these these analog continua are what produces what we call different languages, but are in their origins just variants, right? Um, then continuing to change through time. What are some of the areas in the Mayan world in which Mayan uh, is is so exclusive in terms of the local population that there is, if not uh, no connection with Spanish or or any other Mayan language, either, where they're sufficiently isolated so that there's really just sort of a pure Mayan population or one that's, that doesn't come in contact with a lot of other people? Is there such an area? Right, no, there certainly is. I mean, much of the, many of the Mayan languages have been impacted by Spanish and even before that by Nahuatl, which was the language of the Aztec Empire and still earlier right. groups from Central Mexico. Um, but every one of the sort of five major branches of the Mayan language family has some languages that are remote enough and have had less interaction with Spanish um, that you can find individuals that speak solely the Mayan language in question. This is particularly mm-hmm. true um, even in areas where there's larger population and many of the men um, are speaking Spanish or other languages, um, even in, in northern Mexico, for instance, mm-hmm. or I should say, you know, in, in northern Yucatan. Um, but the women and some of the children back at home and in the villages don't speak Spanish um, or have a halting command of the language. And so one can hear just the language, there's the Maya language in question used on a day-to-day basis um, regularly. 
And how care how closely are the discrete Mayan populations associated, or how closely do they have a contact or connection with their archaeological past and the monuments that have survived in conjunction with them with themselves? Highly varied, as you'd imagine. I mean, we're talking about four different nation states today, right? Mexico, right. Guatemala, Belize, and Honduras. And in every one of those, you have populations that feel themselves quite closely attached um, to the, the, the ruins, I should say, or the archaeological sites in their region, um, and others that really don't see too much connection. And in some cases, there are historical reasons for that. The Kekchi Maya language has spread drastically over the past couple of generations into northern um, Guatemala. Um, and so these particular groups of Maya speakers don't actually have a historical association with the particular archaeological sites that are in those regions. Course, but like all right. peoples everywhere, some of them actually feel a kinship and a connection, a kind of Mayaness, and others simply don't. They see them as a resource perhaps to be exploited or, of course, something in the way of fields, you know, cornfields, which is the which is the sort of important concern of the present day, right? Feeding one's family. Um, so highly varied and very, very complex. It would be a mistake to sort of try to paint a sort of picture of, of how a Maya feels about a, a particular archaeological remain, because they're as of complex course. and differentiated as we are. Yeah. Or the, and, and, and to know exactly how close they feel as the descendants of those populations as well, right? Absolutely. I mean, in places that I've worked in, both Mexico and Belize, I've, I've met um, peoples who feel very, very closely related to, to archaeological sites and others that really don't have any use for them. Not too different from, from you know, people that I know up here in the U.S., yeah. Of course, it's it's pretty much the same thing. So oh, one of the ironies here is that uh, there is a sustained Mayan population, and and it seems to would you say they're thriving? That their chances of survival are are pretty good because they've been around for so long, and there really are large numbers of them. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly, again, in some cases, better than in others. Um, you have the you know bearers of languages like Quiche in the Eastern Mayan branch and Yucatec that are that are spoken by hundreds of thousands and millions of individuals, and right. a good sign that they'll continue to be so simply because of inertia. Um, despite some resistance historically, but I think waning resistance into the present day from the, the governments of these nation states to maybe not promulgate that language or to urge everyone to pick up Spanish. And that's changing, thankfully, due to the work of, of both activists and also um, individual uh, Maya themselves. Uh, to the point that Mayan is taught in the schools and is uh, presumably a language that is still encouraged. Right, not everywhere, um, certainly, not um, and better in certain regions than in others. There's still a lot of work to do on that score for certain. Um, but yes, certainly less, less, less bleak, more hopeful with respect to certain of the languages than would have been true even 20 years ago. Right, so there's a revival here. Well, this has been really fascinating, Mark. Um, I'm sorry that we have to draw to a close, but this has been a wonderful section and a segment of our program, and I'm very, very thankful for your participation. And uh, to all of you out there, we will have some follow-up to uh, North discussions of North American and New World city-states and their evolution and the archaeological record and how it relates to that. Thanks again, Mark, uh, so much for, for being part of our program, and we will see all of you next time. Thank you so much, and good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. 